You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast. Brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Please subscribe to our show for a weekly podcast exploring one of the most captivating and dynamic subjects on God's green earth, intelligence and espionage. Coming up next on SpyCast. Kenya had become independent, and uh, it did become independent in 1964, and that was an opportunity for the political community in Kenya to change or reform the apparatus of the national security sector. However, that was not to be. This week's guest is Wilson Boynett, the former head of Kenyan intelligence and the man credited with turning it around in the late 1990s and early 2000s. An ex-military man who was a former aide-de-camp to Daniel Moy, the long-running president of the country from 1978 until 2002, Wilson made radical changes to the old special branch structure inherited from the British. In effect, creating a modern professional intelligence organisation from what had been, by and large, a law enforcement tool used to intimidate political opponents. This is the second instalment of our five-week special on spy chiefs from around the world. Last week we had former CIA Director David Petraeus talk about Ukraine and intelligence. Next week we will have Michael McElgun, the current Head of Intelligence for Ireland's Garda Shikona, followed by Vapala Balakandran, the former number two at India's Foreign Intelligence Agency, the Research and Analysis Wing, and finally Tish Long, the first female intelligence agency director here in the United States, who served at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. In this week's episode, Wilson and I discuss how he became a change maker in Kenyan intelligence, his vision for a Kenyan National Intelligence Service, how the National Intelligence Service oversees both national intelligence and foreign intelligence, his relationship with President Daniel Moy, and traditional ways of practicing intelligence in what is now Kenya. Thank you to all of our listeners, no matter where in the world you are. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, well, I'm so pleased to speak to you this morning, Wilson. We've been trying to make this happen for some time, but I'm so excited because we are going to have our first 
former African intelligence chief on the program. So thank you for being the first and thank you for sharing your expertise with me and our listeners. Thank you so much. I look forward to that as well. And could you just tell us a little bit more about the agency that you worked for and the country that it was within? So you're from Kenya and you were the former head of Kenya's uh, National Intelligence Service. So just tell us a little bit more about Kenyan intelligence and about that agency. When was it founded? When did you become head and so forth? Thank you. That's a very nice question. Um, of course, I would want to start off by saying that uh, the Kenyan intelligence dates back to the beginning of uh, British uh, colonial rule. Um, Kenya, of course, having attained uh, the colonial status of being colonized in 1920, and the journey had just begun uh, some 10, 15 years before that time. And therefore, um, the history of uh, Kenya's intelligence is really to look at the history of the British colonial power in Kenya, and then beyond uh, the British after independence, up to the point at which I was appointed in 1995. And, and this takes us back to the British legacy, because as I understand it, it was... Uh, a special branch um, police unit that was uh, involved in the Mau Mau um, uprising in 1952. And it had that very British particular special branch police force kind of background. But then when you took it over, you turned it into, as I understand it, a modern professional intelligence agency. Is that correct? Yes, correct. That is true. You know, at the time when I was appointed, there are a lot of things that were happening at that period, uh, and I thought I had, it was important at that time to define the reality uh, as it at that time. In 1995, a lot of things had happened in the world. Kenya had become independent, and uh, it did become independent in 1964, and that was an opportunity for the political community in Kenya to change or reform the apparatus of the national security sector. However, that was not to be. And so they inherited the British system uh, going forward. Uh, so that by 1989, when the Cold War kind of literally came to an end, um, the challenge in Kenya and African countries and the countries that were pro-West at that time uh, found themselves no longer the surrogates of the West. The Cold War had ended. The support that was coming from uh, a lot of uh, these friendly countries, frankly, was no longer forthcoming. The sharing of intelligence had changed, the uh, threats had changed, and uh, now the demand for multipartism in Africa had come in, and Kenya was not spared that multiparty democracy. So the global village was changing, the power shift was happening. And so, uh, frankly, uh, looking at um, the 44 years under which Kenya was a colony, uh, the 45 years of the Cold War and the support that was coming from both the uh, British and the Americans at that time, and, and liais close liaison that were working with the intelligence, uh, had to, were now looking at the new threats, new challenges, new opportunities, new connections. And for our listeners that don't know that part of the world particularly well, 
Can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about Kenya during the Cold War? Because there's there's certain countries in Africa, like Angola or um, Yemen, where there's lots of uh, Soviet influence and flirtations with Marxism and so forth. But Kenya stayed, as I understand it, in this pro-Western camp. Is that correct? Yes, it is true. Um, you may recall in, in 1952, the, there was an Amamo uprising in Kenya at that time. And uh, the British thought they were communist-inspired um, uh, uprising. But, but in fact, they were wrong. It was an internal thing. It was uh, something to do with uh, the Kenyan people who were not too happy with the way the British were conducting political and economic activities in Kenya. And they wanted to change it. And so it was a homegrown thing. And so the local intelligence, uh, which was then embedded in the ethnic groups or tribes, were very active supporting uh, the uh, political uh, class to fight the battle uh, at that time. Remember, after 1945, uh, the African countries, that, like, including Kenya, had recruited army officers and, and men to join the war. And having fought the war at that time, they came back, they were demobilized, and so they were in the countryside. Being in the countryside at that time meant, of course, that um, they, in effect, were beginning to ask questions as to why the British were still in control. And yet, globally, the British were also losing control in the countries like India and Pakistan. So, yes... Um, uh, the people internally had uh, were taking up arms to fight the British. So the, the, at that time, the special branch was really enhanced by the British and included Africans into their organization. But again, it was a question of loyalties. And, and again, um, I think it was the more difficult part for, for the British at that time. Yet, um, there was no communism in Kenya. Of course, there were individuals in the country that were perceived to be leaning towards the communism, but they did not have much support because the communists had not put any infrastructure in the country. It was much more of the British, and soon after the British, the Americans came in, and it was a joint venture, really, joint support between the Americans and the British. So, yes, they, for by that time, um, in 19, uh, early up at, this, at this Cold War, before the Cold War itself, the enemy was known. Uh, it was a joint enemy. It was the enemy of the state and the enemy of the West. So even the intelligence saw the enemy from the prisms of the Western uh, countries. And so we were fighting their war, uh, both externally and also internally. And so Kenya was not able to develop independent units or independent intelligence organization because there were, uh, within its ranks, a lot of the um, uh, intelligence officers from the British um, intelligence organization, the MI5 and MI6, were also embedded into the country. And ju just out of interest, were you born uh, before or after independence? Yeah, I was born in 1952 at the beginning of the Mau Mau War. Um, and so really, oh, and wow. I was born in the White Islands, uh, in Kenya, the, most of the British that came in settled in what they call the White Islands, fairly high, high ground, fertile land, and then they had the Africans to work for them at that time. And by 1952, when I was born, uh, the uprising was beginning, and the Africans were no longer trusted, particularly for the certain communities who were agitating for change. 
So really, yes, I saw it uh, when I was growing up. At, until 19, of course, 63, 64, when Kenya attained independence. Can you still remember where you were that day when Kenya declared its independence, when it became an independent country? You would have been a young boy. I remember I was a village boy without shoes. And uh, we were <laughs> crossing over the, uh, to go to school in, in primary, second, primary school those days. And you had to cross this um, white settler farm and you need a special permission to cross over to go to school. And so we need a special permission to cross. Um, and again, I don't blame the colonial uh, farmers because I think Africans had nothing to, uh, in terms of wealth. And so much, most of them, they thought the young boys were spies for the, for the other ethnic groups to steal their animals and, uh, and create uh, problems for their organization at that time. So that was the time when I was born. And it was quite interesting that um, the Mau Mau rebellion itself was at the top. And so most Africans were now being profiled. And just, um, just before we go on to discuss uh, the NIS, the agency that you're the head of a little bit more, could you just tell us a little bit more about the geography of the country? So some of the neighbours, um, the region, and some of the outside interests that are, that are around in the region. So we had the United Kingdom, then we had Russia and the United States. Now we have China. Um, so just discuss a little bit more about some of the, the neighbourhood, the region, so to speak, and then how some of the powers have interests in Kenya and are, are, are there and trying to influence events. I, th- I think it would be interesting to know that um, at the time, that was uh, uh, just before independence. A lot of countries in Africa were attained independent, but uh, the British had a special area in, uh, in the region, and so were the Germans, and so were the French, so were the Italians. Most of the European countries, of course, were in Africa. And uh, as we were getting to that level, uh, they had already, um, Kenya, Kenya specifically, had this Kenya-Uganda railway, which was a, what they call the Lunatic Express. Uh, it was meant, I, I, in my opinion, to create a British empire that was able to access um, Suez Canal because it was so strategic to them. And, and so they wanted to create uh, an access to India because of trade and commerce, of course, given the Imperial British East Africa at that time. So the, all this region in Eastern Africa particularly were pro-British. And so by the extension, pro-American. And so there was limited time and limited opportunity and also access by the Soviet Union uh, at that time except a few countries in Africa that were maybe held by the Portuguese and they were not effectively um, governed. But the region, specifically East and Central Africa to some extent, and then more importantly, the Horn of Africa. The Horn of Africa, which is comprising Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, Djibouti, and so forth, was still within the strategic Horn of Africa. Uh, And that is a horn that during the Cold War, the Russians wanted to come in very, very seriously because they wanted to control uh, also the Horn of Africa for purposes of controlling the Middle East and also the Far East. And, and that is why at that time, uh, countries in the region, uh, when the Cold War uh, was beginning to end, uh, there was, in effect, uh, a lot of interest and, by extension, turmoil. And the Horn of Africa itself was undergoing very tremendous change 
in Somalia in 1991, um, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, um, began to, um, in other words, at that time began to collapse. And so there was an implosion within the ethnic peoples of uh, Somalia. Um, but prior to that period, the, the, the Russians had been there to try and counterbalance the Americans in Ethiopia and also um, counterbalance Americans in Kenya. And so the interchanging of, of loyalties at uh, that time, depending on who was supporting who, uh, created uh, a lot of refugees uh, in the region. There were a lot of refugees that had come to Kenya from uh, Sudan that was also fighting. There were refugees from uh, Somalia. There were refugees from Ethiopia. There were also refugees, to some extent, in the Republic of Congo. Most of these refugees, in effect, were a, a great challenge to a young country like Kenya. And so the horn itself was a horn of problems of famine, wars, and failed states. Now, because of that, therefore, the intelligence had a hell of a job to try and find out the movement of personalities and peoples in the region in goods and services. So in effect, there's a huge, at that time, proliferation of small arms into the region and into Kenya. And therefore, insecurity overall was also experienced here in Kenya at that time. Wow. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us about traditional ways that uh, people in Kenya would gather intelligence before the Europeans came, before it became a, a British colony. So if you could tell the listeners about that, I think they would find it interesting. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, the, that's a very good question because um, the history of uh, the local intelligence networks and spy networks, espionage networks in Africa and in Kenya in particular were not captured because most of the history was oral um, and therefore were not written anywhere. Uh, so that, um, remember, before the uh, Berlin Conference of 1884-85, that uh, partitioned Africa then, uh, we were living in a free land. Uh, we did not have a country called Kenya. It was then called the land. And uh, it is only the tribes that were powerful that were able to uh, effectively collect information uh, from the neighboring uh, ethnic groups or tribes and be able to fight them. And because they do not hold land, and most of the battles that they were being fought was a question of uh, capturing and seizing assets and expanding their territory, which they were not able to command. There were no maps, of course, at that time, and they were not able, therefore, to know how much land they were possessing because they were not involved in, in, in creating cities or towns. So, yes, there was a number of, uh, at that time, collecting information about the neighbor, about the next ethnic group, about the next kingdom, and, and find out whether they were able to fight them back, how strong were they. And then, and then these local, local spies of young individuals who are generally very agile and who used to work with the local um, Libons. The Libons were people who were able to prophesize the future, and they had extraordinary powers that the community believed were in full control of their people at that time. Specifically, a country like Kenya had own uh, ethnic people, and, they, and the communities were expanding. And all that, of course, came to an end uh, when uh, Kenya became a colony in 1920. But by the time they did that, 
Um, there was expansion at that time. The uh, intelligence group were not even supposed to be known by the next neighbor because if they were captured, of course, you lose the asset. So they were existing, they were collecting, but all of it was oral. So they needed people who, who were generally bright, who were generally able to uh, assimilate issues and were very clear on the, on the mission that they were sent to collect information for purposes of sending the armed men to raid and to be able to seize the assets uh, as it were. And you may remember those days, because Africa was a, a very huge landmass, uh, nobody wanted to defend any land uh, because there was land everywhere. So so question of, uh, of uh, an attack here or an attack there was not very strategic, but the, the intelligence were used to preserve the community. Uh, there are women from being um, lobbed and being uh, forcibly married away and probably losing your own identity. That is how the intelligence were used at that time. Let, let's come back up to when you become the uh, director of NIS. So you're there at this pivotal moment where you're taking special branch and then you're setting up NIS. You're the first director, so you're there for a considerable period of time as well. So just tell us, what was it like to be you, Wilson? You, you get given this job, you turn up and you have to try to figure everything out. So just tell us what was that process like? Because most people take over structures and processes from someone else that are already established, but you have to do everything from the draft board, so to speak. So just help our listeners understand a little bit more about the problem that you faced and some of the challenges you had to overcome. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Andrew. Um, in 1995, uh, remember I had just been promoted to a brigadier, and, and, and Moy, and, who was the president, was facing challenges of reforms from the World Bank, from the IMF, and from also the agitation for multi-party democracy. So there were a lot of uh, agitation and pressure to bring change. And a lot of the opposition members had been uh, arrested, tortured, and uh, the enemy to them was the special branch of the Kenya police. So I think uh, the president, in knows wisdom, decided that it is time to change this thing. And he, pro- he knew me because I had been his aide camp. So he appointed me. To me, I thought it was not really a very good uh, job. I thought it was one way uh, of uh, trying to retire <laughs> me prematurely. Uh, however, I took over, took over the job. And the first thing I asked, and I didn't really care much because I had just come from Mozambique, uh, which I thought was a mission that was not the best uh, that I had been given. I didn't care very much whether I got a job or not and whether I became a factor. So the one thing I did ask the president at that time what he really wanted. And he said, look, I want change. But I think he was not sure what kind of change was he looking for in the intelligence. But I think the fact that I had been an outsider, he thought that would be a very good thing uh, for anybody uh, even political groups to be able to appreciate, even the donor community to appreciate. But then there were resistance because I was from outside. I came from the military. I was the first person from outside the police force to now to be the director of intelligence of the special branch of the Kenya police. That, then, then, of course, I was a third one because the first director was uh, somebody, Mr. Kanyutu, who had been there for 25 years. And then he had retired. Then the next guy was another police guy. He was there for one and a half years. Then he was retired. Then I came in. And I think 
uh, the political community in Kenya and intelligence community were not sure whether I was going to make a difference anyway. So, so I get in. The name of the, the organization uh, was in stagnation. The opposition wanted it banded. The uh, ruling party wanted it to be retained because they were damn good in terms of um, dealing with the opposition and they were able to uh, penetrate them, be able to um, interrogate, torture if they could, and try and suppress any uh, pressure that was coming from the political class. So I was coming in at the time when all those things were happening and the Cold War was over, and the Western intelligence did not care very much uh, what Kenya was going to do. So I had an opportunity to look at um, this monster called uh, Change and, and, and confronted by talking to and, and appreciating the fact that the president had alluded to it. And I said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to change this, this thing. I was an outsider. I went to the president and I said, I think it is time to change. And he said, go change it. Uh, and, and but before you change it, I want you to retire from the military so that you are a police officer, so that you wear a police uniform. And I said, no, sir, I do not want to be a police officer. <laughs> he said, you're going to be a police officer. So I said, okay, so I'll be a police officer in the hope that this change will happen. He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, change will happen. I'll support you. And therefore, uh, as I go in, I ask the question, therefore, what is it that I needed to know first? And I thought the first thing, anything else was to look at defining where we were uh, and being able to uh, look at uh, the culture and the leadership of the special branch at that time. Uh, and so, yes, I took time. We went down to uh, meeting individuals uh, from the headquarters and talking to sectioned heads. They were also frustrated. Their terms and conditions of service were not very good. They were recruiting people who are graduates now, but they were paid like ordinary policemen. And so when they saw a change coming, they, they were mavericks. They were individuals in the organization who were willing to come on board and to be able to assist in uh, changes. So long as I was very clear on what the actual mission was. So my first job was in the first place, frankly, was to um, uh, be able to find, to frame, uh, to frame the problem of uh, where we were and what needed to change and what time frame we had and, and, and so forth and so forth. And just, just for our listeners, uh, Daniel Moy, he was the president from 1978 until 2002. So he was the president for a very long period of time, but towards the end of power, he says to you, we need change, uh, this has to happen. Yes, you know, I think Moy had, he, he, if he didn't change uh, uh, his, his own economics, if he didn't change uh, the, um, the politics, he, and he, didn't, he didn't want to do anything about security, he was not getting the kind of aid that was required to be able to improve the, the overall national power and standing of Kenya within the region. And he saw the danger of uh, his government being overrun and the opposition taking over. So to him, I think he wanted to do incremental changes uh, going forward. And so what, by coming was a good thing. Uh, and I think he, he, I don't think he was, I don't think he was really seriously thinking <laughs> I will be able to change it anyway. 
uh, but he was happy that there was a change. After all, I brought in a military man who is disciplined and who will get things done, and, and I'm not challenged. So, so that, that, I think, is the main reason I think that's what happened. To help you digest this episode, in this interlude we're providing a brief primer on the captivating history of Kenya before the Mau Mau Rebellion and independence, i.e. the periods of time that our guest mentions in this week's episode. If you want to learn more about Kenyan history or what we discuss in this week's show, you can go to our extended show notes at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast. Kenya's history is rich and complex and has been shaped by various forces, including external colonial powers and internal struggles for independence. Located as it is in East Africa, as part of the so-called Horn of Africa, Kenya has been influenced by nearby Arabic culture and commerce. A substantial percentage of Swahili, for example, consists of Arabic loanwords. The seafaring Portuguese made contact in the 1400s but were displaced by Omanis from the Persian Gulf region. While colonialism proper would come at the end of the 19th century when the British arrived in what is now Kenya, aiming to establish control over the region. They were primarily seeking economic opportunities and over time, the British East Africa Protectorate was established with Nairobi becoming the capital in 1905 and the Protectorate would transform into a colony proper in 1920 with the country renamed Kenya after its highest mountain. We'll be right back after this. I mean, it's quite interesting because you you come in, there's this long-serving leader of the country, um, there's various challenges that are going on. His regime's being criticised for um, using special branch to basically bully and beat up political opponents and so forth. And then you have James Kanyoto, who you mentioned, who's there for, what did you say, it was 27 years 25. or something? 25. And as I understand it, he he was quite corrupt and, and used his position to to make his family quite wealthy. So you're tackling many challenges. You've got a, a political system and a political leader who's wanting the country to change but still wants to hold on to power. You've got the legacy of, of a corrupt uh, system. And as you mentioned earlier, people are somewhat scared of, of special branch because of its reputation, because some of the things that it had done so... And, and and then you also mentioned that it's it's like a police force, but it's not it's not doing intelligence analysis. There's a failure of intelligence analysis. So, how do you kind of tame all of these forces that are swirling around? Help us understand. Did you just get a sheet of paper and sit down and draw up? Okay, here's what the structure is going to look like. Here are the three main things that need to change. Yeah, just help us understand how you you structured and brought about that change. What were the two or three main things that you set out to do? I think I would say that I really, I went through about five stages uh, in, in, in steps in, in, the, in, this, uh, in this journey. First of all was to, as I said, uh, framing the challenge, which I have uh, just alluded to. And then, of course, at that time, I had to look at... Um, uh, understanding the culture of the organization. In step two, I had to look at the issue of beginning to build trust. You know, uh, trust for the organization, trust, the trust me that I was uh, uh, there for the good of the, for to change the organization and not to 
be able to be an occupier force. In any case, I was one individual. They, a lot of them thought I am bringing in a lot of military people who would then overrun them in their own old profession and that they were the best professionals. So yes, a question of trust was important. And I think one of the in the step to which I wanted to take was to look at them, identify the mavericks in the organization who themselves wanted to really ch to change. And then, of course, developing the pioneer leaders. There were a number of people whom I needed to uh, be able to pioneer any change that was going to be coming because I knew a change was definitely there already. Then uh, look at the hanging, low-hanging fruit for that change. There were a lot of low-hanging fruit that needed to, uh, for me to ad address. For example, if I got in, I needed to change the, the culture that uh, people feared to even look at the building where the headquarters of the intelligence was. And I thought maybe it's time to make it more civilian, more friendly, remove some, some of the paraphernalia, uh, change to look like a hotel as opposed to a serious office. And, and so and look at also picking up a few uh, reluctant leaders who I know at some point they would be able to join the, the train. And then, of course, um, go to step three, which was to get the pass rate. Uh, how was the organization uh, beating its own uh, system? Was it okay in terms of personal recruitment, in terms of the way they were being promoted, in the way they were being, um, uh, being removed from the service or being transferred to the police? Was there a proper system uh, that were followed? Was it tested? And, if, if, and that would be produced, in other words, uh, look at the way they do the talent sporting of, a, of the intelligence officers uh, to be able to fill in uh, certain gaps that need to be required, specifically the area of analysis and, uh, and, and production. Then look at the issue of uh, who would then midwife this organization, study the morale in that, in that step three. And then step four was to look at the transitional period. How much time did I have? I had just come in in 95. I am looking at uh, the next election in Kenya was 97. So I thought I had about two years to be able to um, study the organization and with a view to changing it before the next election, which was coming up in two years time. And so again, I needed also to look at a possibility of um, uh, traveling and, and walking, walking uh, around to visit um, people that were feeling threatened with this new change that was coming and I needed to look at the police boss and look him in the eye and say, look, my friend, are we, do you agree we want to change? You'll be on board with me. Look, go back to the military where I came from and, and say, look, do you think this is something that you want the country changed? Yes, I, I give a lecture to a number of uh, parliamentary committees that were composed of both the opposition and government at that time and see whether, whether the agenda was, uh, was in sync with what they wanted to achieve. And then I went down to the other final thing, which was to look at the buy-in. And, and once I got that done, I thought, well, do I have friendly countries that were willing to come on board? Uh, I think the best one was to start, of course, with the, with the British, who had just been with us for a long time, and their relationship with the government was not that bad and good, so to speak. Look at the Americans, look at the Germans. Look at, look at the Commonwealth, because there were a lot of common countries that were already uh, trying also to change, but there are difficulties in changing. I think the problem is, how do you change intelligence in the middle of a normal routine? I think was a big challenge. And so I thought, well, it doesn't matter. All must go in tandem. We will still continue working while at the same time beginning to look at what 
constitutes change that I needed to bring on board. So again, I needed academia. Because a lot of academic, academia at the university had been victims of the intelligence uh, torture. Uh, because they misunderstood the academic freedom for uh, resistance to government change and to, and to be able to uh, oppose, opposing the policies of government. And, and look at the media, spoke to the media people, and whether they were willing to, uh, whereas going forward, they were willing to support uh, the changes that I was intending to plan and, 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 and do. Then as step five was now the implementation stage which was going to be coming, and I could see the entire steps even uh, before I began. So even as I was trying all this, um, trying to uh, move around, to uh, walk around, to meet people, I had the greatest challenge because uh, those, the gentlemen I was supposed to take over from the organ, in the organization uh, uh, was not going home. He, he, he decided to hang around and create a, uh, create a, um, uh, I think I must say a resistant movement, so to speak, uh, not to want to see me come in. And the propaganda was broadcast out there. And so as they tried to the broadcast, the media that I had met, the politicians that I had met were saying, no, I, I, we can't buy this. So I think the guys is for the good. So really, I think uh, within a period of three, three, or three months, the guy decided to throw, throw the towel and left, and left without handing over the organization. So I, I, I had the best opportunity uh, not to have taken over from anybody uh, to just come in. And I thought, well, I am not going to be a little brutal uh, in terms of bringing change. And I needed the, a number of people to say, I think you're on the right track. And so I, I started um, changing the product, um, looking at a few people who could then analyze. Uh, because for years, when I used to be AD come to the president, I could see the first director, director of intelligence come to State House. He would carry a briefcase, and inside he had his handwritten notes. There were no computers in the organization. There were massive information to be mined. And, and I thought, well, why not I start with the easiest? Look at a few computers, do a change, have information available, and so forth and so forth. So I think that's that three, four, five steps that I was taking, in my view, and selling it to a number of uh, guys who are willing to be on board, uh, gave me the confidence to move forward. And, and going back to the politicians and, and finding out that they were okay, meeting the opposition, uh, they said this is okay, they were quite happy with it. And they thought that by that time, what really helped me, I must say, was that there was a, an underground movement that had been formed by certain communities to try and undermine uh, the leadership of the president. And they started the publications that was against the government. And a lot of them had been arrested and they were now being interrogated by the special branch in the uh, prisons and police cells. The first thing I did was just stop it. And I did clear with the police boss and with the president that he didn't he did not to do this anymore. It is part of the pressure why the West was saying that he need to change this monster called the special branch. And I, and, and I got the support, frankly. And so that I think that stopped. And that I won, I think instantly, a lot of other bystanders to say, look, this guy may after all be for some good. Uh, I don't think I got all the support, but it didn't matter very much anyway. Uh, so then the reforms process uh, into legalization. I traveled overseas. I went to so many five, seven countries because I had visited so many other uh, groups um, that were critical of the government. And I had uh, 
kind of won over them and had their views. I brought those views to the, to, to the, to, to, to the system, to my organization, to one and change it. And so by the time these resistance were coming from internally and they were getting out to reaching out to politicians, to the media, to the other groups, when the real reforms were walking the talk, when I began walking the talk, uh, it meant now I had gotten the critical mass, I had gotten the agenda, I had visited the countries overseas, I was now ready, and it was time to look at the legalities of it and how to prepare the structure, the organizational structure, the new one, which uh, did not have the police ranks, did not have the military ranks, it was a civilian organization. That is where the challenge was going to look like, because people had been used to what they call um, the uh, appointment cards and uh, being privileged of being a police officer and not being arrested by a policeman because they had excessive powers. So when I wanted to change this, that's one of the issues they said, forget it, don't try. We will not support you uh, in, that concept, in that context. So again, I think um, it was a question of, to me, it was a question of uh, focus, question of tenacity, and a question of resilience. And I was prepared. I was prepared. I know I was getting publicity from the uh, Gata press that there is uh, this gentleman who has come to confuse uh, the role of the intelligence and politics. And that since I was, had been Moise A.D. Camp, they started a propaganda that actually um, uh, this, is, this, is, this is a decoy. Uh, this is to bring the man on board uh, so that uh, Moise could rule for an additional more, many, many more years. Uh, in the name of uh, reforming the intelligence. But that did not bother me. I mean, I had not been appointed anyway and didn't know whether I was going to last. And I thought what was important is to leave him a legacy and a mark. For this uh, transition as well, the president, was he happy with all of the changes you were making? You know, how much freedom did he give you? Was he constantly over your shoulder saying, do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that? Or did he just say, figure it out, Wilson, and come back to me next year and give me an update. Yeah, let me know how much latitude you had. You know, first of all, I was very lucky. I was very lucky that I knew him. I had worked with him for 10 years. And then I was lucky that um, I knew his challenges because I had been there when he was going through this rough uh, pressure to change. I was also lucky that um, as he went down to... <laughs> I think other politician is very interesting. They, they, they say they want change, but really they don't want change. So I think even as I was preparing changes, he was sending other emissaries to block it. That I know. But I didn't want to say that I know that people are blocking it because that would have been defeated on my part. So I assume that he was getting full support. Even when I know he would say no, I would come back to my Mavericks, the, the pioneers, and say the president is fully supportive. Uh, frankly, I'll be forgiven someday about that. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that that drove the thing properly. <laughs> we moved on, and by the time we finished in '97, '98, I think he was very busy forming the government. President Moi was forming government. He had no time for what the changes I was trying to go through because he was very busy uh, reorganizing his government. By the time he, in the end, the act was in place, and I got the Attorney General <laughs> to brief him. I also had an, uh, some British uh, you know, MI6 guys to help me. Uh, one of them came to Kenya. And he went to see him and he said, do you want two services or you want one service in the, in the country? And, and the president said, two services. Then I, went back and I, then I went back and I said, sir, you want two services or one service? He said, what do you want? I said, 
I said, I said, I think one service with two roles is okay because of the money, because there was no money in the country to, to be able to fund uh, what was coming. It's okay, one service. And then the following week, no, two services. So we have all over that issue, and it took for some time before he accepted to now say, okay, it's going to be National uh, Intelligence Service, one service, uh, with roles that brought in economics, it brought in um, the ICT, brought in uh, internal, brought in external service, uh, counterintelligence, and so forth. And so, yes, I, at that time, I was also very lucky. I had made so many friends in, uh, in the West that they started visiting Kenya to say, to congratulate the president for, for the daring thing that he did about reforms. So he took the credit, which was good for me, good for the organization. <laughs> I quite like this. It's, it's like you were mounting your own uh, institutional insurgency. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I, knew I, would be, I, knew I would not be appointed because, because they come, the time for appointment was in 1999. And so there were many other candidates who wanted to be in that job of the director general. And to me, really, I had gotten what I wanted. Even if I didn't get a job, it was fine. I knew that no going back anymore, no going back to the old, old ways of doing business. And so I think in the end, I, I must have, a, I must have, I think must have my luck. The president said, okay, my friend, you've been a good job. You, you started a monster, deal with it. So, and so we moved on. In this interlude, I just want to draw your attention to one of the fantastic programmes that we have here at the International Spy Museum, Spy Chat. Spy Chat is a monthly programme hosted by our Executive Director, Chris Costa, and you can sign up to watch the current FBI Director, Christopher Wray, in discussion with Chris on September the 7th, 2023. This will be a live event you can attend virtually or in person if you're around Washington, D.C., all you have to do is go to the Spy Museum website to register. For Spy Chat, each month Chris is joined by a distinguished guest to discuss the latest intelligence, national security and terrorism issues in the news. Chris is a 34-year veteran of the Department of Defence where he worked in counterintelligence, human intelligence and special operations while a commissioned officer in the US Army. He then went on to work for the Naval Special Warfare Development Group a.k.a. SEAL Team 6, as their first civilian deputy director. A former senior director for counterterrorism at the NSC, you can watch Chris's videos of Spy Chat online at our YouTube channel. And just to clarify for our listeners, the National Intelligence Service, that does domestic national intelligence, it does foreign uh, external intelligence, it does counterintelligence. It's like MI5 and MI6 all within one agency. Yes, that's true. All within one agency, and, but, but they are almost semi-autonomous, uh, but they have the director, but not the director general, uh, all working under, under one uh, system because the world, we are a small country. Remember, we are not a very huge country with interests. Our interests are limited. And so the idea of uh, bringing two or three services, in, in my view, uh, was was was, going, was not going to last um, uh, a long time, and so yes, that 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 was created. Uh, that is what it is today, and I think it's in my view we are fast among equals. Mm-hmm. And just tell us a little bit more. So you come in '95, you have this plan to instigate change. These changes begin to take place. You're you're turning the ship around. 
Then tell us about 1998, so August 1998, the the bombings in uh, Tanzania and Kenya and in Nairobi. Are you are you in Nairobi that day? Tell us what it was like to be you during this period. Oh yes, you know, uh, frankly, um, before that time, remember in August 1998, the uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, there was this bomb that went off in the American embassy and also in Dar es Salaam. So that 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 happened, and and you know, it was not to us, was not uh, out of in the dark. We had uh, gotten a walk-in um, to our organization at some one of the outside stations, uh, who had told us that uh, going to be an attack. Uh, in in the central business district in Nairobi, uh, not in Tanzania but in Kenya, and that uh, the target was the American embassy. Um, it was not. It was one source. It was not collaborated, but somehow we shared that information. Uh, but again, remember we are still um, the special branch. Uh, we are not been uh, you know legally formed, and so I suspect that um, we were not able to convince our our friends. <laughs> that we were actually accurate in our information. They wanted to, in my view, um, talk to these uh, walk-ins, which of course, naturally, we refused, but we gave them the information nevertheless. So when the bomb came, came up and, and, the, and, and there was a bomb and, and we had even given that information to some limited um, you know, decision makers, uh, I looked like a hero that I had some information but uh, we agreed that we do not want to be bombed, so we, we kept it hush-hush. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, I think uh, I, 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 that contribution uh, may have been a factor that I used it as well to say, just imagine if we were well-organized and we were well-funded and we were well-trained, we would have been more accurate on pinpointing the threat. And so that, I think, in my way, became a catalyst in uh, the coming year, uh, 98, uh, towards the end, to have the act passed by MPs, members of parliament. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned that we were still special branch. When did it officially, like when did the law pass parliament? When did it officially become NIS? You know, when the act of parliament came into place in 1998, December, that technically meant death and oh, the end December. of special branch of the police because we are no longer under the police and we are the new service. So the act itself created us and created the service at that time. Mm-hmm. After that, so the, the December 1998, the Act of Parliament gets passed. And then tell us about the rest of your time uh, as the director, because you're there until I think it's 2002, but obviously during this period, 9-11 happens as well. So just tell us about this period between 1998 and when you leave. Well, I remember I, I was then appointed director general, first director general in 1999 in March, and, and January really, and, and I stayed on until uh, 2006 when I left. Now, I'd been in the organization for three and a half years plus 10, so really that's the period I was, I was there. And when I, when I became the first director general, it was now the actual tough work to be done to now actualize the theory and practice it and make sure that the changes that were coming were actually affected. Recruitment, training, exposure, much equipment patches, uh, the act is implemented, the oversights are created. Um, the, uh, peop- the, si- the system, the computer system is introduced into the organization. 
the analysis department is operational. The quality of the product is improving for the departments of government. In the meantime, because of the bomb in 98, uh, I created, and at that time we created the National Counterterrorism Center, and we got it funded. We brought in the Mali Agency for purposes of coordination. That went well. That, I think, in a way helped us. In t today, it is one of these that is helping us to bring in, to reduce the line of communication and time wasting in terms of coordination on counterterrorism. Then comes on board, we are looking at the product that we are now be able to produce, the uh, annual assessments, the regional assessments. And then we started creating a, a rapport now and, and declaring officers in other countries, which we were not able to declare them officially uh, during the days of the special branch. And that therefore meant our liaison was improved and uh, on the common subjects on the quid pro quo basis was improving our products to add value to what we already knew. So that, to my opinion, was the equation of improving the human resource, uh, bringing the equipment that were modern, uh, looking at the ICT that would then help us in media mining and producing the AI. So that, in effect, uh, we were then the kind of uh, the blue-eyed organization in the country. And, and then I built, we went on to build a new headquarters because I remember a case when, where we were initially and I brought in so many computers into the organization the electric, electricity, the Kenya Power Electrical Company, were questioning why the kind of money and the kind of power we were using, was it a factory we were creating in the headquarters or there was something else new? I was also surprised to realize that the computers were consuming so much power. So we, we kind of moved a location to a new location, and that was also another paradigm shift, uh, that the people are able to move to different locations, the terms of service has improved. We are able to have a clear a path on career progression and promotion and discipline, exiting and remaining. And so the general was on, in my opinion, was going to work for, was going to be in the office for five years because the first director, director of intelligence had been there for 25 years. I had made a decision that the director general will be for five years renewable for another uh, five years maximum 10 years. Uh, that way you would never go back to the organization. So in a way, that has assisted people who are anxious to, to want to change and, and that the change had actually taken place. And I had made it say that uh, when the director general is brought in, he's not brought in by the president in office, but he, there is an overlap so that there's continuity uh, in the service uh, delivery and that you will not be political. Because if you are back to say, uh, the term of the president, the chances that you will play politics, and therefore the continuity will be uh, compromised. So that 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 is that I think is one one of the things that we moved on. We then connected with other countries to train more. I got a lot of support, dealt with the region, and then started working on the on the uh, the bandit economy. See the bandit economy that had been created in the Horn of Africa and the and the Eastern Africa region was as a result of porous borders, movement of people, and a small arms that had actually penetrated the region. And so our tourism was affected. We had to work around that. We had now to bring confidence with the politicians that were felt had been wrongly um, detained. And, and, and they, we opened gates for them, unfortunately, or, or, or without us to court. And, and they won cases that actually the special branch um, were torturing us. 
and 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 I was very I was very lucky because I could I could only say I don't know about it. That's how we tend it. <laughs> and just to help me understand, like for for you when you were the director, or or even now, who are some of the major regional partners, allies, friends that Kenyan intelligence has? First of all, externally, I I would say that um, we we never got any major support. Uh, or rather direct support from uh, uh, powers, um, the hegemonic powers. You know, in other words, we got, we got, we got a bit of, a bit of in terms of um, equipment and, and information sharing now from uh, the friendly intelligence service, the, 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 the Americans, the British, the Germans, and Europeans, most of them. But more importantly, uh, when I came to the office, I extended the, the issue of um, regional cooperation. Uh, the first regional meeting of the intelligence chief was only following the agenda of terrorism because terrorism, international terrorism are no longer within the country. And that became, to my opinion, that to me was, the, the, in, my, in my view, the easy, low-hanging fruit to bring relationships to the region uh, so that we could then have confidence to be able to share information. And that is why partly the East Africa community had collapsed in 1971 because of the fears unfounded fears that the spies in each country were spying on the other country. So with that bringing together uh, that relationship was another milestone in terms of bringing the East Africa community to bear, to trust one another, to say it can be done, that the threat was common, that it was a regional approach, that we had to do it, and that the analysis was, was probably pointing towards that threat. So yes, the region, we, we built it, and again, there was this Proliferation of arms, and, and, and also there were also these uh, dissidents that were crossing our borders that we needed to share information uh, on quid pro, quid pro quo basis. Okay. Wow. You know, we have listeners all over the world, but we also have a lot of listeners in the United States. But you've actually spent some time in the States, haven't you? You've done a degree at the National Defense University. Can you tell us when that was and what the experience was like? Oh, yes. Um, in 19, when I finished, when I, when I completed my tour as aide-de-camp of the president, I went back to the Department of Defense briefly, uh, to the intelligence, and then I was, uh, at that time, the National Defense University, of course, uh, do selection globally, and we were entered into a program called International Fellows Program, where we had 14 countries that were coming in 1990, uh, the end of it, and the whole of 91. So we were there during the very interesting time when the Cold War was ending. And so our going in there was to crystallize our views, to be able to understand the world as it were, to be able to bring politics, economic and security into perspective, and to understand how the, uh, economic, the, the power shift in the world was moving. And so it, to me it was, a, 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 so to speak, a very eye-opener for, for the intelligence and for political uh, meeting together to look at things in one perspective and look at it and analyze it, uh, and of course, from American perspective, but to look at it uh, globally, how the other countries were fitting into this uh, arrangement. So the one year, so to speak, in National Defense University was uh, a very good thing to, to, to me. I had, it was a big training. It was an, an area of um, uh, looking at um, how... Um, America will look at the world post post Cold War, how 
Europe were going to behave um, about Cold War towards Africa, towards uh, each other, and, and the world at large as a global village. Uh, I, we saw the Soviet Union at that time, of course, collapsing, uh, and so, so we were there. So that we were there also when uh, the uh, past Iraq-Kuwait war, uh, the, the Middle East war that was coming up. And so it was a very exciting moment. Uh, and we had all these lecturers and we were all sharing information. Wow. Yeah, that's a really fascinating time to be here. And I understand that you're in the International Fellows Hall of Fame for the National Defence University. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I got there. <laughs> but but whatever whatever I did, uh, I think it is, it's, it's, a, it's a very pleasant thing to have. And there are a few people who have been to that Hall of Fame. It also makes me feel very good. I felt very good that time in, in, in when I got in the Hall of Fame and I came in there in, I think it was two or five or after I had, you know, I had, you know after I left the office. Uh, and so to me, it was a fantastic reunion to understand that there are people watching uh, their alumni uh, that they are able to contribute uh, global peace. And, and so my reforms, I think, in a way, must have informed that Hall of Fame, I think. I may be wrong. <laughs> and uh, tell us what uh, what you're doing now, Wilson. I know that you're working on a book and it's coming out later. Th- is it later this year or early next year? Is that correct? Yeah, most likely uh, the end of the year, but latest uh, early next year. And I'm looking at uh, the uh, re- reforming or transforming the spycraft to be able to help the statecraft. Um, and so it's quite a, quite a very interesting moment because I'm looking at all these issues uh, from pre-colonial days, the kind of issues you have asked me, really, looking at the pre-colonial and the colonial period beyond that and to what we are seeing uh, now. So I think it's quite a, quite a challenging book. And yet, at the same time, it's very interesting that you, there are issues you cannot say, but you wish to say. So it, 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 it makes, makes me awake in the morning, and I have a reason to wake up. But I, in addition, of course, I... Uh, I'm interested in uh, t- taking my time to um, bond with my uh, children and grandchildren and then, you know, travel. That's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Well, the next time you come to the States, you need to come to the International Spy Museum. I'll, I would love to meet you in person. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah. This has been uh, really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Andrew uh, Hammond, and, and, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. The Garda, Garda Siakana actually is, is the full title, and that's a Gaelic expression which means guardians of the peace. We are the policing and security service of the Irish state, and that's defined in law. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. 